0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Barbara Tversky, who is an Emeritus Professor of Psychology at Stanford University, and also uh, Professor of Psychology at Columbia, University. Welcome, Barbara.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: Oh, I forgot to mention also that you are the author of this book, Mind in Motion, which we're, we're going to discuss today. And the book is full of all sorts of fascinating insights into this area. I, I I don't know if, is there a defined term that describes this area of psychology? Is it spatial psychology or the psychology of movement? I think that you make the claim in the book that spatial thinking is the foundation of all thought. That's a rather bold claim, but I remember when I learned about amoebas back in the day as our distant ancestors, they only could think about one thing, which was the sugar gradient. traction toward sugar and knowing where the sugar is. And so their entire brain was just this map, right? This this gradient. Could you elaborate on this claim? It's a rather bold claim.
1: First, what is this area of psychology? It is spatial thinking. It's thinking about space, what's in it, the various spaces we inhabit. All of that is crucial to life. Sometimes it's referred to as embodied cognition. Keep that as an open parenthesis. It's a loaded term, and it means very different things to different researchers. So I avoided it, wisely or not, because I didn't want to spend pages defining the term and saying how I was using it differently from other people. I thought that wouldn't be of interest to more general readers. So, back to spatial foundation is, is spatial thinking is the foundation of thought. moving in space is essential to life. If we didn't move in space, we wouldn't find food, shelter, avoid dangers, and be attracted to good things. Even plants move, they turn toward the sun, away from the wind. And your amoeba might go toward sugar, but the amoeba is going to go avoid other things. So the basic motion is really approach or avoid, go toward or away from something. And you can see that immediately ties to emotion. Is it attractive or repulsive? Do you want it or do you want to avoid it? So that from the get-go, one-celled organisms, even viruses that are hardly alive, that dichotomy of going toward or going away is essential to survival. So if we jump from amoeba to primates, um, we find in the brains of rodents, they've been most studied. You can put electrodes in individual neurons. It doesn't hurt them. They can wander free with these neurons. And two remarkable findings that won the Nobel Prize, place cells in hippocampus. They're Individual cells that fire when a rat is in particular places in the environment. These are not spatially mapped. And that was a puzzle for some 20, 30 years until the Mosers working in O'Keeffe's lab. The Mosher's found one synapse away, right next door to the hippocampus, in entorhinal cortex, what are called grid cells. And they mapped the place cells on a sort of map. It's not completely accurate with respect to external space, but it absorbs proximities and orders pretty well. So studying that in humans is harder because we don't go around implanting single electrodes in the brains of humans except when they need to undergo brain surgery. And then many of them volunteer, Because, again, it's painless and and hopefully harmless. Volunteer for these sorts of experiments. And in humans, what's totally remarkable and mind-blowing, and it was research that was coming out as I was writing, is place cells in humans don't just code places. They code people. They code temporal events. They code ideas. And what's key to those single cells is they gather information from all over the cortex, multimodal information, into a single cell that gets activated when an idea comes up, when a person comes up, when an event comes up. And then these get mapped in entorhinal cortex, in the grid cells. They get mapped by temporal relations, by social relations, by conceptual relations. So the same brain structures that are coding places in space and spatial arrays are encoding events and people and times in conceptual, temporal, and social arrays. So that feels like a strong finding supporting my statement. We have evidence for spatial thinking in the way that we talk. We put forth ideas, we tear them up, we toss them out, we pull them together. So that the way we talk about ideas is the way we talk about, or actions on ideas, like throwing them out and tearing them up, is the way we talk about actions on objects. And you almost can't talk about actions on ideas, about thinking, without using that language. If you watched my gestures, our gestures support that thinking. We're using the body to think about tossing out ideas, turning them upside down, and so forth, so that those actions that we're thinking about get externalized as gestures. And the gestures are like actions on objects. We tear up paper or we flip bottles around, but there is no object. There is an imaginary idea that we're acting on. So those, the gestures, the language, and the brain all go together to support this audacious idea that spatial thinking is the foundation of all thought. I append to that it's not the entire edifice, just the foundation.
0: Now, in the book, you mentioned that psychology made a big advance back when we kind of moved our attention away from behavioralism towards an investigation of the mind and getting into the black box of well or the circular cranium or whatever we have up here i'm wondering if we have gone astray a little bit in psychology because i think the most exciting areas of cognitive science right now are the areas around artificial intelligence and there's this metaphor of the the mind as a computational device right and you mentioned in in the book that just by putting all of these ideas of yours into a book you're freezing your thought in words and this necessarily is linear right this necessarily is sequential and which is in some ways kind of an an artificial way of thinking is psychology spending perhaps too much time on the metaphor of the mind as a computer and should we be rethinking of the the mind as having a spatial component and what would be the implications for how artificial intelligence is approaching this theory of cognition
1: artificial intelligence is going in many directions as is brain research as mind research there's so much talent that has been drawn into those issues because so exciting and so basic to being human and to acting in the world. So it's almost as if the metaphor is reversed. And it's not that we see the brain as a computer, but we're seeing the computer as a brain. And many of the people active in AI are really trying to mimic the mechanisms of the brain, which don't have words. So it's activation of neurons, different kinds of neurons. That's been a challenge to AI because much of it doesn't distinguish what kinds of neurons, what their specific connectivity is, and so forth. And the brain has a lot of specialization along that line that isn't completely understood. There's so much left to do that's truly um, exciting. But many researchers in AI are now realizing they really need to think a body, Not in a body in the world experiencing things, seeing things, making sense of what it sees, making sense of how the body interacting with things in the world, finding its way in space, acting on objects, the sorts of things we take for granted every day that we do, making our morning coffee, getting to work, So all of those things need to be taken account of in one way or another by AI. Words won't be sufficient, although they've done a sort of remarkable job just feeding lots of Wikipedia entries into an AI and letting it run loose has led to problems that Seem as if they're thinking and inferring, but you can trap them into making absolutely absurd mistakes—mistakes mistakes by our standards. So I think there's in, the, and there are many groups now working on what could be called embodied AI, using insights about how the body behaves in the world, and truly exciting advances along that. Line that you need to add a body and a body acting in a world to really, to get an AI to truly understand and be able to explain what they're doing. Now, explanations, people can't always explain what we're doing or why we're thinking things, but we can try and sometimes we're on the mark, sometimes not. But having an AI that can explain why it came to that inference and not some other inference, is that's a goal that hasn't been reached yet and probably can't be reached without understanding how we behave in the world.
0: You talk about action as sort of creating an integration function where you are taking all of this sense data and it comes in through isolated channels, but really it's the action which allows you to integrate them. And you talk about children when they're looking at their hand and and they're observing the motion of the hand and how the sense data that comes in through their eyes and the sense data that comes in through their arm neurons are very different things and they have to somehow integrate them. I remember when I was in college, I, I took a, a psychedelic mushrooms and I remember doing exactly that same thing. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, these are two completely different sensations that I have just conflated automatically without thinking. It was really a r- remarkable discovery for me at that time.
1: Yeah, no, we take for granted how our body integrates what we see with what we feel, and it is magical, and it, it this is, again, we can't explain it, and you developed a way of getting insight into it, and that's lovely. Of All of a sudden, something that it, that is familiar and automatic and unchallenged all of a sudden you realize what complexity underlies the sensation in your hand with what you're seeing your hand do. And there are lovely experiments now dissociating that so people can become identified with a rubber hand because you can stroke the real hand while you're seeing the rubber hand and you make that inference that rubber hand is your real hand. So there are ways short of mushrooms of dissociating those things, but I don't think people come to the insight the way that you did. One favorite study was done by a colleague, Maggie Schiffrar, in her lab, and she dressed people in black. This is a kind of standard procedure. You dress them in black and put lights, tiny lights on all the joints and photographs them moving, jumping, playing ping pong, dancing, walking, standing on their hands—you name it. And what you get when you look at those videos is just this array of lights that are moving. When they're not moving, you don't know what it is. When they start moving, right away you can see that's a man walking, that's a woman walking, that's a child walking. They're jumping. You get the action just from the joint movement. What Maggie did was uh, film a lot of people doing this and brought them back in the lab later. And some of the people you knew, some of them you didn't know, and you were asked to look at those videos of someone dancing, playing ping pong, and identify who is that. Is it you? Is it your friend? Is it someone you don't know? So people were pretty good at recognizing their friends. Above chance, they could say, yeah, that's my friend X doing those things. Remarkably, they were best at recognizing themselves. Even though these are ordinary people, not dancers, they haven't been looking in the mirror while they've been dancing, playing ping pong, and so forth. So they've rarely seen themselves as they appear to others nevertheless they were able to map that motion that they were watching onto their own bodies like trying on clothes
0: so the things that we pay attention to in the world are dictated in part by the organization of our mental machinery when we look at a painting for instance we they've done a lot of eye tracking and they show that we spend most of our time looking at the the faces and the portraits and and maybe also look a little bit at the hands and we don't really spend a lot of time looking at the small of the back or the the bicep or the shin and we don't look a whole lot at the floor that's around the the body and this is not something that's intentional it's not something that's chosen it's it's just dictated by what we as a result of our evolution have determined are the most important pieces of information but this is all reflected in sort of the amount of brain machinery devoted to these different things that we see, right?
1: Sure. I mean, there are dedicated places in multiple places in the brain for faces because we're social creatures and faces matter, who's familiar, who isn't familiar, who's friend, who isn't. So identifying faces and bodies and body postures. So there are multiple places in the brain that compute, do the computations that generate faces as opposed to uh, bodies, for example, or trees. So that the things in the world that are important for our own existence, for reasons, as you say, evolutionary reasons, the computations are highly developed in the brain.
0: Can you redeploy these parts of the brain so I think the probably you mentioned the hippocampus earlier and and the hippocampus i think is has become famous lately because of all the work that was done on the london taxicab drivers and you know it was shown that it can actually physically expand in in, in size as it gets put to better use kind of like your muscles but you know we, we certainly don't need to have those maps anymore because we have we have google maps and so we'll get into mapping i hope later. Those parts of the brain i think have been redeployed by memory experts and so if you're trying to remember a lot of facts you if you put them into some imaginary location you can I remember things better. Is is that right?
1: Yes, the brain has some plasticity, and of course, it declines with age. And those locations, the areas of the brain that are sensitive, that do the computations for particular kinds of things in the world, are subject to neuroplasticity. So those face areas, the areas that are sensitive to recognizing individual faces, not that there's a face but individual faces become employed in dog experts for recognizing dogs now that wouldn't work for you and me unless you're a dog expert and I don't know about it but if you develop expertise in judging dogs that area of the brain that that distinguishes individual faces will adapt to that there's More plasticity for babies, so babies who are born blind or deaf, the areas that usually represent sound or vision come to represent something else. In particular, touch comes to take over the visual area. There were studies done a number of years ago getting volunteers to walk around with blindfolds for several weeks, And in those several weeks, the occipital area at the back of the brain that is representing vision for the most part came to represent touch. And for congenitally blind who learn Braille, that's where Braille happens. The visual system is taken over by the fingers, and it probably has to do with the kinds of computations just as much as the input. Because here the input is changing, but the computations aren't changing. As for using Google Maps, it's extremely helpful for people who are map-challenged. And there are, I know people like that who find great difficulty using maps. And then having a, a strict route directions, even verbal, not map, or using Google Maps can help. Does it interfere with our own abilities to make inferences from maps? Sure. But we can't fix cars anymore and we can't fix refrigerators and nobody can compute a square root anymore. And our calculators do it for us. Even mechanics now just switch in modules with parts. They can't, many of them can't fix cars. So everything is a trade-off. And it might be a good trade-off using a calculator to compute a square root. When I was a graduate student, I did all, this is centuries ago, I did all my dissertation calculations by hand. This is absurd in these hmm. days, to do it by hand. Computers can do it efficiently, faster, less, fewer errors. It would be crazy to do those things by hand.
0: I'm a map buff, and I have loved geography since I was a child. But you make the distinction between egocentric directions and allocentric directions. I I always think of direction giving as a as a great test of empathy right so if i'm trying to evaluate someone for their empathic capacity uh, i just ask them for directions and and if they say you just go you know you just go there just do it then i realize that they really don't have a lot of of empathy because they can't put themselves in the shoes of the person who's not familiar with the route what are those differences and how do we think about them differently
1: i'd say you're making a big mistake A huge mistakes. There are people who are geographically challenged who and really bright people, and they can't explain directions. So it's not that they aren't empathetic. They don't have the ability to take a global map and turn it into a route. And even for people that are good at that, it's, it takes some practice to get back from a global map to a, a route with a particular starting point and a particular ending point, you're changing from thinking about things as northwest and south and east to thinking about things from your perspective of mooning through an environment. What's on your left? What's on your right? What's in front of you? When do you turn? So it's a really poor test of empathy. It is spatial perspective taking has not been shown to be correlated with social perspective taking. And many people have tried to find that correlation. It may pop up, but it's really hard to find. And it seems to be, again, a special skill that isn't related to more general skills, spatial skills. It requires... Thinking of ourselves in a global way, understanding how those landmarks are related to each other, the things we're seeing, it's really quite complicated. And the schematic I gave you with the rats is a simplification of just wandering around the world. I'd like to expand on those two perspectives, the one embedded in the world and the one that's overview, But because there are social analogs, so it relates to some of the work we and others have done on creativity. Are you sitting in your own place looking around you and just altering a little bit the sorts of things you're seeing, the individual objects, the individual viewpoints? It's a political map, I'm thinking of my viewpoint, what is an adversary, someone from a different party, what is their viewpoint? How do they see the landscape around them? How do I see the landscape around them? Then I might go to other countries. There are huge differences in how the Russians saw the Second World War and the events in it and how Americans saw it and how Brits saw it. They all saw it from their own point of view. But you can also go above and take a more analytic Perspective of what are the events, what is the temple arrangement, and it go way more abstract. That is, so it's north, south, east, west. This happened before, or after. This was happening here. This was happening there. And you're not necessarily integrating them into a route, but you're seeing the global map. So those two perspectives of going above and seeing a complex structure or being on the ground and seeing what's around you and imagining what's around someone else, there are different ways to approach problem-solving and prediction and many other sorts of psychological inferences that we make. And going back and forth between the particular on the ground and the more abstract, I think, helps you get a better picture in the end.
0: And I love that insight, which is a really broad insight from this idea of spatial thinking. You Describe how the most useful or functional ways of looking at the world are not always the most accurate ways of looking at the world. When we're navigating space, the stuff that is nearest to us is larger in our mind, and the stuff that's further away is sort of smaller. And this is true not just spatially, but also temporally. When we look at 1300 AD and 1500 AD, they seem super close. But when we think of 19 89 and 1991 they they seem further away depending on the function should we be stress testing how we we view the world or is, is this just a natural part of making sense of the world
1: yeah the world is always changing so it probably makes more sense for us to exaggerate things that are close to us people that are close to us events in time that are close to us because they've had more influence on our activities and behavior. Similarly, the things that are close to us in the real space are more likely to impinge on us than the things that are far away. So some of that egocentric and exaggerating close and minimizing distant probably makes sense in our behavior, But for certain kinds of thinking, like getting proportion, getting balance, not getting panicked, it helps to think more broadly. So the past year, we've been talking a lot about the 1918 pandemic and drawing and surprising analogs to our experience the past year and a quarter. So in many ways, you need both. What's accurate, I think you were hinting at it, depends on what we're trying to do. So I'm trying to get food for today. It's different from running a food supply or growing it. So I want the information that's relevant to what I need to do. And that might mean exaggerating the importance of certain information. It certainly means minimizing all kinds of information that isn't important. Maps do that. They don't show you every building. They don't show you the trees. They aren't like aerial photographs, which would be useless. So what you need for whatever you're working on is what will determine what information you keep and what information you take away. But that inevitably distorts.
0: We were talking before about the the Steinberg map of New York and that map has been reproduced countless times and people have it on their walls and I think that it's been reproduced yeah. for pretty much every city in the world and and I think the reason why it resonates with people is because we recognize that's how we view the world. You also mentioned the London tube map and and even though the image is not in the book I immediately knew what you were talking about and how the brilliance of the map is that it it really simplifies things and gives you the information you need and if you try to figure out what the actual geography of London is from that map, you're not going to always get a very accurate depiction.
1: Yeah, and it straightens the tube lines. They're either horizontal, vertical, or diagonal and if you ride the tube, you're going in curves, but you don't need to know that. What the designer of the Tube map knew was you needed to know where the lines intersected, so which line should you switch, and that there were more of them in central London, and people were coming from the outskirts to central London. Central London is way bigger than the rest of the map, which is far less complicated, and the intersections are fewer So all that is useful, but yes, it distorts the distances, and it distorts the shapes, but that complexity would make it much harder to use. And it's considered a gem, and the paradigm for tube maps all over the world do that. And there are huge arguments. They tried to change the one in New York, the subway map and huge arguments about what you're distorting and what not, and people are devoted to one thing and not another, and can't see why you think this is important when obviously something else is important. And we do that when we make brain maps. We do that when we make corporate diagrams. We do that simplification, just sewing the interconnections and maybe a hierarchy, and it it really crystallizes what we need to think about at the moment, decision trees and so forth. Yeah.
0: You offer up eight laws of cognition in the book, one of which is that uh, spatial thinking is sort of the foundation of abstract thinking. And, and abstraction necessarily is, involves some kind of distortion and so sometimes leads to some errors. And, you know, the favorite ones that you offered were the question of is Venice east or west of Naples? Is Reno, east or west of Los Angeles. And of course, my favorite one is Berkeley, east or west of Stanford. And of course, most people get them all wrong. And why exactly is it that we get that wrong? How does this kind of alignment work in our brains? And why is it super helpful to us? But why does it also lead to these errors?
1: When I did that work on maps showing that people upright the Bay Area and make the boot of Italy go vertical, and it works in many places around the world. I was thinking of how we organize perception and the perception of the environment that we're looking at and scene recognition. And two processes seem uh, salient there. We group things by proximity. These are gestalt effects that are known and loved for many years. So things that are close, we tend to group together, and we tend to want things that, say, are close or nearly like to be going in the same direction. So if I think of the Bay Area, and I know that it's tilted, I still upright it in the frame of reference so that the Bay Area or Italy is upright with respect to the north, south, east, west frame of reference, We find it for South America. It looks tilted, but people tend to upright it. And we find that for blobs too. We just give people blobs and ask them to remember, and they tend to upright them or make them more horizontal. So that's one way we understand the space around us is by understanding it with respect to a frame of reference. And we keep moving and integrating things. But We want things upright or horizontal or vertical with respect to a frame of reference. The world is like that. We have gravity and we have a horizon line that's, for the most part, horizontal. The other part is kind of grouping things. So people think that South America is below North America. They think Europe and the United States are lined up when actually Europe is farther north on the whole than the United States so that's again a kind of grouping we say next to it comes out in language something's next to something else something's about something else we summarize brutally those sorts of things and this is languages all over
0: the other thing you mentioned in that chapter was when you're asking about proximity it depends on which direction you're asking so if i say how close is your apartment to the empire state building you'll give me a different answer than if I say, how close is the Empire State Building to your apartment? I don't understand. How does that make sense? What's the process at work there?
1: Uh, To some extent, the Empire State Building or the Eiffel Tower form neighborhoods. So they're representing more than themselves. If somebody from out-of-state asks where I live, I might say, near the Empire State, near the Ground Zero, because these are likely to be familiar to people. They form neighborhoods. And my house is not a neighborhood. It isn't conceptually a neighborhood. So it comes from how we think about those things. People, when they're asked to judge the similarity of magenta to red, or red to magenta, the similarity of magenta is almost a red. It's a kind of red. But red isn't a kind of magenta, so the distance from red to magenta is greater psychologically or will be judged psychologically than the distance from magenta to red. And similarly, the distance to the Empire State Building from my house will be less judged as closer than the distance from the Empire State Building to my house. So it's again a general phenomenon. So these are spatial phenomena, and we can find evidence for them in spatial judgments, but we can also find evidence for them in conceptual judgments, which are quite similar. What's special about the landmark asymmetry and the conceptual asymmetry, the colors, and many other examples, my husband long ago did research showing that people think that North Korea is more like the PC, People's Republic of China, than China like North Korea. And people like to talk about the similarity of a son to a father, not a father to a son, because there is a kind of primary, the father or China are paradigmatic, prototypical examples, and North Korea and the son are not. So even though the symmetry in some objective sense, the similarity has to be the same, people judge it as different. So this refutes any metric map of conceptual relations, but also spatial relations. Or If we accept the landmark asymmetry as people's beliefs, and there's plenty of evidence all over the world for it, then our mental maps are not euclidean they aren't the way real maps are they're distorted
0: now you you spent a lot of time talking about gesture in, as a form of communication you know i found this very powerful and the fact that i found most interesting was that this does not increase your cognitive load but actually these are since they're different they're using different modules I guess it doesn't require extra mental effort and in fact when you add in gesture the communication is, is more effective and yet I've been sitting here with you and you've been gesturing quite a bit I have not mm-hmm. and we go to of course in Italy where everyone if you want somebody to shut up you tie their hands behind their back whereas in, in other cultures people aren't using their hands quite as much and you reference how the part of the brain that we use for speech is the same as the one that was originally for using of hands how can people use their gestures better to communicate not only abstract thoughts, but also intention and emotion.
1: So, if, first of all, that the area for the hand, speech didn't completely overtake the area of the hand. This is speculations by the man who did the early work on, and beautiful work on mirror neurons, Rizzolati, and he was highly speculative. Those areas mm. in monkey are close, but also in humans, they're close, but it's not overlapping. So his theory really was that because there are single neurons in this mirror neuron system, it's different from places, but there are single neurons in monkeys that fire when the monkey throws something, and when the monkey sees someone else, even a human throws something, So it's mapping the seeing of the action to the doing of the action. And it's a small vocabulary in monkeys of actions that do it. But the speculation is that instead of really throwing, I could use that gesture of throwing as an indication of my intent. And we do follow people's hands for intention. We follow their eyes. They're going to look at where they're going to act. And then we follow their shoulders because they're going to turn to act on something. And we follow their hands as we interpret what other people are going to do. Think of being a catcher and watching the pitcher, right? They have to have very sharp eyes to infer what the pitcher is going to do. And the batter has to do that. And then the pitcher has to fake them out.
0: You mentioned that you can tell just by looking at someone's hand motion what their intention is. And I remember I took an art history class where we spent a couple of weeks just looking at the hands of paintings. And we were supposed to infer what the intent, the emotion, the state of mind was of the people that were in, in the paintings. And of course, the, the way you would do this is you would actually put yourself in physically in the position and put your hand in the position that you saw in the painting. And this would help you to understand better what this person in the painting was feeling.
1: The mayor in system says he, that happens automatically. And the experiments I told you about earlier about recognizing yourself. Dancing also says you don't have to do it You feel it in your body. It resonates. That's the theory. So, yes, how much we're going to recognize from paintings depends on the skill of the painter and the painter's ability to represent those actions. Well, I mean, if you look at The Last Supper, da Vinci really knew about where people were looking and the social interactions and where they're reaching and where they're gesturing, and you can see. You can mentally animate exactly what's going on in that conversation around the Last Supper. It's truly extraordinary. And colleagues of mine in Italy did absolutely brilliant research, trackings, having people watch videos of a hand reaching for a bottle. And the videos were truncated before the hand reached the bottle. But observers were able to tell whether the person reaching was going to drink from the bottle, or pour, or hand the bottle to somebody else, just from the way the hand approached the bottle. Now, the bottles grasp the same way, no matter what. So, these are mysterious findings. We don't know what cues people are picking up, but it gets into, again, we're learning or understanding so much from human behavior, from looking at them. It isn't words, It's not what they're saying. We know when people are bored. We know when people are wrapped in whether they're sad or happy.
0: Are we losing something in the move to online communication? We're doing this interview virtually. Business meetings are are virtual. We can still see each other's faces and potentially maybe even bits and pieces of our hands. But there's so much of the kind of bodily clues and corporeal movements that are not as visible, and and maybe we're not even making as many because we we feel more constrained within this little visual box. Are the communications necessarily going to be emaciated through this medium?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think everybody's realizing in Zoom, and if you say, I'm gesturing alone, it's, it's intentional because I know from a great deal of research that people understand what other people are saying through their gestures, often the gestures say things, say that the words don't say. So your people giving instructions may curve or may show a curvy road when they're not saying it. So if you're in Italy, as I have been, and gotten lost in the mountains and ask somebody for directions in three words of Italian, watching their bodies, gives you a huge amount of information. Gestures can set up whole spatial schemas on the left, on the one hand, on the other hand, and then I just need to do this and I'm piling up arguments because I've set up this space that's representing the one hand on the other hand. I can set up spaces for time of events in an order, So to do it in words would take a lot of words, but I can do it very quickly with gestures on the top, on the bottom, feeling good, feeling lousy. So I do gesture on purpose and deliberately, and it matches my thinking, I hope, and helps other people. I know it helps other people. It also helps me. So there's a whole lot of research having people sit on their hands and explaining how to get from the railroad station to their house, and they have trouble finding, not just finding words, but thinking it through. So if we put people alone in the room and and give them spatial descriptions of how things work, descriptions of different schedules of people, they're alone in a room and learning this because they're going to be tested, they make models with their hands of the road system, where things are, of how the car brake works, of where the different times are. They'll make a a schedule on the table, in the air, using the knuckles of their hands. And when they do that, they remember better. So setting up your ideas in space helps you think.
0: So the last thing I want to ask you, basically two questions. One has to do with what you call empathic design and how thinking from different perspectives can help you to both design better and explain better. And and then also the importance of, of drawing. I was really interested in what you had to say about drawing as a tool for both learning and creativity and communication. and and i remember going to a talk many years ago at an architecture school where one of the architects was bemoaning the uh, disappearance of sketching in in architecture and uh you know at first i was thinking this person was just a luddite but then i thought about it and and i realized that there was something about this act of drawing because i'm always drawing i'm always doodling i'm always diagramming things and reconfiguring things and rearranging things so what is it about drawing that helps us to kind of generate concepts better And then what is this idea of empathic design? How do you see that?
1: So there are two long questions I can start with a second. You could think of drawing as frozen gestures. I think they go beyond because once you're putting something on paper, it's going to be more complete. It has to be. And you see gaps. And you also see implications that you hadn't thought about So both those things happen when you draw. So architects, many architects, do prefer drawing for designing, and we studied um, many of them, and they all drew. We gave them a drawing assignment. We took experienced architects and newly minted ones, and they draw. Their early drawings are sketchy. They're not working out all the details, just the main ones, where are things gonna be located? What's the background? That sort of thing. But then when they look at their drawings again, they can make inferences that they couldn't make in their minds. The mind is too small. The world is bigger. So for example I think you say when the
0: mind overflows, that's when we encode right, things right? we
1: use words, gestures, drawings Arrangements of salt peppers on the kitchen table. So, and it's a way of externalizing our ideas for someone else or for ourselves. And again, that helps us understand and think. It's much more precise than words. So that's missing from Zoom. Also missing from Zoom is the gestures. And this camera isn't so terrible, but the Zoom camera, it is. When you start to gesture, your hands get huge. And again, I'm self-consciously gesturing. I'm trying to gesture in a way that my hands don't overwhelm. But those are missing. And I know there are thoughtful people knowing that work will probably stay partially remote knowing that are working on making better video platforms that will include, will allow gesturing easily and fluently, and will allow a shared thinking space. The other thing that happens in group meetings, even one-on-one, is we need to be able to look each other in the eye. And when you have an array of people in boxes Everybody's array is different. We don't know who's being looked at. Who's being looked at is crucial for the next speaker. It's crucial for attention, for knowing what other people are attending. So having these arrays of boxes where you don't know where people are looking at and your array is different from mine.
0: So this increases cognitive load because we're trying to figure it out and we can't.
1: Cognitive load. Yeah. it, It interferes with normal communication. We need to know what people are looking at, what they're attending to, what they're seeing. It's not cognitive load. It's uncertainty. We don't know what they're looking at. We couldn't figure it out even if we had unlimited cognitive load.
0: And uh, just final question about empathic design. And you mentioned that mind-wandering and brainstorming in an unstructured way is not necessarily going to lead to greater creativity, But this idea of empathic design, which incorporates perspective taking, moving laterally, moving vertically, and rethinking problems from other people's points of view, this helps you to become more creative. How do you think about that?
1: Yeah. So again, I'm an empiricist, so I need evidence. So there have been a number of studies trying to show that mind wandering increases creativity. And the typical test is alternative uses. This is used in many engineering and design classes and as a warm-up exercise. So the typical example is a brick. Think of other uses of a brick. We found others. Um, Atypical uses of an umbrella, of um, a shoe, uh, and so forth. So it's alternative uses. And are you coming up with novel uses? It's hard to because you keep coming back to the normal. So the mind-wandering might work because it releases what's called fixation. Fixation is when you can't see alternative solutions. You keep coming back to the ones that you had, going back to solving algebra problems and other kinds of problems. We've all experienced fixation. It's all too common, and even top-notch designers experience fixation so mind wandering brings in other stimuli walking in the woods brings in other stimuli so that and releases it can help release you from fixation but what it doesn't do is give you a pathway to finding new solutions it's again similar to behavior of children or dogs you tell them don't do that but you don't tell them what to do As an alternative. So they keep doing that because that's the first response in their repertoire. And you have to change the responses in their repertoire so they're doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing. We have it on ourselves. Take the fruit, not the cake. We have to suppress the wrong. So it's not just don't take the cake. Give me something else. And similarly for a child, don't just hit your brother. Do figure out another way of interacting, or give the child another way of interacting. So same on design. So I might be released from fixation. I still don't know how to search for new ideas. So with that alternative uses, we tried a bunch. Think of yourself in another place. Think of yourself at another time. Think about major events like parties. But if you take each of those, and each of those are important ways that we organize information around people, places, and events, time, those are ways that we organize in our head information. But there's a way to bundle all that, and that's professional roles. And we know a great deal about those because from the time we're very little, what do you want to be when you grow up? A pilot, an engineer, so that we know and we interact with them, with librarians, with physicians, and so forth. So we know a lot about what they do. And what we did with the unusual uses is say, think of a gardener. How would a gardener use an umbrella? How would a gardener use, or how would a physician use it? How would a policeman, how would... So we gave them a bunch of professional or social roles and said, think about how these people might use that object and see if you can come up with more ideas. And they did. So that the people where we told them to take... Different roles, an empathetic approach, and this is the approach of the major design firms, is put yourself in the shoes and think how they would do this or know how they would do this. And in fact, it's amplified by a great deal of anthropological research of going into communities and seeing what people are doing and how they're solving the problems they're interested in. So we told people to think about that. They came up with many more uses. The uses they came up with were much more novel. And they not only used our roles, they invented new ones. So they got the idea, just keep thinking of other points of view, other perspectives, and maybe you'll come up with new items. And they did. And the people that adopted more roles came up with more novel items. The experiment worked like a charm. We did it twice. The mind-wandering was really no better than the control, that we're given no extra instructions. And again, we think it succeeds because we've given people a route, a pathway. So then you think, will this work for other kinds of problems? taking other perspectives. So in political decisions, maybe thinking about your adversaries or people with other points of view. In economic decisions, think about what other companies, other countries might do in your shoes, and then maybe you'll alter your own. So that empathetic route can work for many others. For other situations, it's kind of more complicated. So an example that I like especially is one that Mukherjee highlighted in a New Yorker article, that the metaphor people had for cancer, or the traditional one, is cancer is an invading force, and it must be destroyed. So you do anything to destroy the cancer. But then people realize that many people die with cancers, with, in fact, multiple ones that never turned aggressive they didn't die of the cancers but there's evidence that they had them a new metaphor took hold and that's that cancer is a seed and you don't you want to spoil the soil basically you want to prevent the seed from germinating and spreading and it's a kind of more peaceful metaphor for one thing But it does make you think differently about treatment, and you're preventing the cancer from taking hold instead of killing whatever is there, because whatever you're using to kill the cancer kills other cells. So it has side effects that are unwanted, just as wars do. So thinking about alternatives, even that idea... I think has great generality of thinking of things in, in this military way of their enemy versus thinking of things that are seeded and you want to prevent the growth. I think those metaphors can be applied to more than cancer, to the way we deal with other countries, other people, and might do a great deal not just to improve cancer research and treatment, but our relations with the world
0: well and of course this illustrates how all thinking is rooted in spatial thinking because we we talk about viewing things from all sides and taking different perspectives and it's about if you want to understand something you have to move around it and so thank you so much barbara this has been fantastic i really appreciate you joining me and of course i will think of you next time I'm on the airplane and someone hits me in the face with their backpack because that was hopefully that'll happen sometime soon. I'll I'll be so happy. I'll be glad that I get hit in the face with the backpack on the plane. But thank you. I really appreciate you joining me and hope to see you sometime on campus.
1: Thanks so much for your wonderful questions. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.